I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers and Company, America has become the world's incarceration nation, and there's a movement building to change course. Michelle Alexander is at the heart of it and says we can put an end to our dehumanizing penal system and give people a new start in life. If we are going to build a movement to end not only mass incarceration, but to achieve much greater social equity for all, it's going to have to be a movement that begins in our churches, in our faith communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, one where people really wake up and say, we are going to build the kind of democracy that we deserve. Thanks for joining us. Last month in Sydney, Australia, they threw an annual event called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. One of the main speakers was David Simon, the writer and producer who created The Wire and Treme, two television series that vividly portray the vast gap between rich and poor. Nothing drives that great divide home, he said, like our prison system. You're seeing the underclass hunted through a a war on uh, dangerous drugs, allegedly, that is in fact merely a, a war on the poor and has turned us into the most incarcerative state uh, in the history of mankind at this point. He's right, of course. During the past 30 years, the number of inmates in federal custody has grown by 800%, and half of them are serving sentences for drug offenses. According to the Sentencing Project, an advocacy group dedicated to changing how we think about crime and punishment, more than 60% of the people in prison are now racial and ethnic minorities. This book woke people up. The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. She was my guest more than three years ago when the book was first published. An outstanding work of scholarship on how our war on drugs, our harsh mandatory minimum sentencing, and racism have converged to create a caste system in this country very much like the one under Jim Crow segregation laws. None of us at the time anticipated the powerful impact her book would have. It became a bestseller, spurred an even wider conversation about justice and inequality, and transformed Michelle Alexander from attorney and professor to an activist and advocate for an end to our dehumanizing penal system. Michelle Alexander, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When the book came out, um, one reviewer called it the Bible of a social movement. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the apostles and the disciples and the church spreading? Have you seen the signs of a movement? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it has me so encouraged. As I travel from city to city, and I've been speaking in churches and at universities, I've been speaking inside prisons and reentry centers, just an incredible range um, of venues. I see over and over again um, people who are dedicating their lives now Um, to ending the system of mass incarceration, to raising consciousness, people of faith who are organizing their church communities, um, organizing within mosques, um, holding study circles, holding film festivals, and then organizing and mobilizing their memberships or their congregations. I'm especially encouraged by formerly incarcerated people who are finding their voice um, and organizing to demand the restoration of their basic civil and human rights. Um, organizations like All of Us Are None, which has successfully, um, you know, achieved ban the box um, legislation. Ban and the box? Ban the box on employment applications. The, you know, box on employment applications that ask that dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And, of course, it doesn't matter whether you've been convicted of a felony a few weeks ago or 40 years ago. For the rest of your life, you're labeled a felon and then subject to legal discrimination for the rest of your life. What are those ex-felons, what have they been telling you about what it's like to come out and try to get back into the society to which they have paid for their sins? I think it's just an extraordinary challenge. I mean, I think most people have this sense that when you're released from prison, well, yeah, life is hard. But if you really dedicate yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, knock on enough doors, you'll get that job, you'll get your life back together. It may be hard, but if you really try, you can do it. 
But what I've learned, you know, over the years from working with um, many formerly incarcerated people and forming close friendships with many people who've been released from prison is that it's not just hard, it's often impossible. You're released from prison, often with, you know, maybe $20 in your pocket, have nowhere to sleep. You try to return home, maybe to your family who lives in public housing. Um, Felons can be excluded from public housing. Whole families can risk eviction if they allow people with felonies to come home to them. Trying to get a job can be next to impossible. Um, You know, people say, well, well, they could get a job at, you know, Burger King or, you know, some minimum wage job. No, actually, you know, many low-wage jobs are for all practical purposes, off-limits to people who have felonies. Hundreds of professional licenses are off-limits to people who have felonies. In my state, in Ohio, until just recently, you couldn't even get a license to be a barber uh, if you'd been convicted of a felony. Food stamps may be off-limits to you if you've been convicted of a drug felony. Um, You know, what are people released from prison expected to do? Apparently, what we expect them to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support, which continues to accrue while you're in prison. And in a growing number of states, you're actually expected to pay back the costs of your imprisonment. (laughs) And paying back all these fees, fines, and court costs may be a condition of your probation or parole. And then if you're one of the lucky few, the very few who even manages to get a job straight out of prison, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back all those fees, fines, court costs. How do you explain this, given the fact that this is a society that celebrates uh, second chances for politicians in particular, (laughs) a society that is built around the theme of renewal, born again, Mm -hmm. uh, and yet doesn't extend that same act of forgiveness to people who have paid for their sins? Well, we say we're a society that supports second chances, but in reality, we're not. And I think um, the reason to fully understand what's happened in this country with respect to mass incarceration, you have to look back at least 40 years um, to um, the law and order movement that was born um, in the midst of the civil rights movement. You know, when civil rights advocates were beginning to violate segregation laws and sit in at lunch counters and um, desegregate trains and buses, um, violating what they believed were unjust laws, um, segregationists said, you know, this is leading to the breakdown of the respect for law. We need law and order in this country. Um, And the call for law and order was in direct response to um, the civil rights movement and the nonviolent civil disobedience um, the protesters were engaged in. Um, But this law and order movement began to take on a life of its own um, as crime rates began to rise in urban areas and um, some politicians began to say, you know, this rising crime is a symptom of this attitude of lawlessness that is spreading through the nation. We need to get tough. We need to crack down. We need law and order. And as I've documented at great length in the book and many other political scientists and historians have as well, The Get Tough movement and the war on drugs really is traceable to a backlash against the gains of African Americans in the civil rights movement and a radical shift in mentality that occurred where, as a nation, we ended the war on poverty and declared the war on drugs. A wave of punitiveness really swept the nation on the heels of the civil rights movement. And this attitude um, has infected not only our criminal justice system, but our education system that now has a zero-tolerance policy for school discipline infractions um, and has led to this prison-building boom, unlike anything the world has ever seen. How have mandatory minimum sentences contributed to that? Well, mandatory minimum sentences ensures that you will get the harshest possible sentence um, under law, the mandatory minimum Sentence. And so it shifts power to prosecutors so that prosecutors can then say to you, Will you take this plea or else you're going to get this harsh mandatory minimum sentence? Um, and it 
gives prosecutors the power um, to, you know, encourage plea deals. Um, you know, in the federal system, I think 97 to 98 percent of all, you know, charged cases result in a plea, not a trial, because people are terrified of facing these harsh mandatory minimum sentences. And it ensures that it's up to the prosecutor, not the judge, um, you know, what kind of a sentence you receive. And mandatory minimum sentences has a lot to do with the exponential increase in our prison population in the United States. Um, and today, you know, even in this era of Obama, in this time of supposed colorblindness, um, we now have created a system of mass incarceration, a penal system unprecedented in world history. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. Um, and the majority of the increase um, in incarceration in the United States have been among impoverished people of color who, once they're swept into the system, are then stripped of the very rights supposedly won in the civil rights movement. Um, and yet the topic of mass incarceration uh, has been one, you know, that has been rarely raised. Is there research that confirms that the backlash is against black criminals or against criminals, just crime? Well, there is. There's an enormous amount of research that suggests that the backlash and the punitive impulse was not simply in response to crime, but was uh, much more deeply connected um, to racial attitudes, racial fears and anxieties. And in fact, you know, the political strategists who conceived of the Get Tough movement and the war on drugs quite deliberately um, used not-so-subtle racial appeals and racial code language um, with the purpose of trying to exploit both conscious and unconscious racial biases and stereotypes for political gain. Um, the Southern strategy. Um, By which Richard Nixon was elected president. Yes, yes. The basis of the Southern strategy was using these kind of racially coded get tough appeals on issues of crime and welfare to appeal to poor and working class whites, particularly in the South, who are anxious about, threatened by, resentful of many of the gains of African-Americans in the civil rights movement. And to be fair, I think we have got to acknowledge that poor and working class whites really had their world rocked by the civil rights movement. Um, they were the ones who might have to ship their kids across town to go to a school they believed were inferior. It was them, they uh, who were suddenly forced to compete on equal terms for limited jobs with this whole group of people they've been taught their whole lives to believe were inferior to them. And this state of affairs did create an enormous amount of fear, resentful resentment and anxiety, and an enormous political opportunity. What about now? Other. How do you see that playing well, out? Well, I see it most obviously in the immigration debate. Today, we see that this fear of immigrants coming across the border to take jobs and uh, to take educational resources and who are going to drain the uh, tax base of your county, these fears that they are coming to take from you um, is leading and has led to another sort of get tough movement. Um, get tough on them, those immigrants who have violated the law by crossing over. And this wave of punitiveness now directed towards immigrants is leading to the same kind of indifference um, towards their basic humanity um, that we have seen in the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement that led to the rise of mass incarceration. I mean, we are having mass deportation today at the same time as we are having mass incar incarceration. Mass deportation, I must say, by a black president. Absolutely. It's one of the great ironies, just as it's you know an irony that the greatest escalation of the drug war was under President Clinton, who, you know, many African-Americans called our first black president. <laughs> I remember that. And it was President Clinton, you know, a Democrat, um, who escalated the drug war far beyond what President Reagan or President Nixon had even dreamed possible. And it was the Clinton administration that championed laws banning drug offenders even from federal financial aid for schooling, 
you know, upon their release, um, banning drug offenders and people with criminal convictions from, you know, public housing. Um, you know, to a large extent, many of the rules, laws, policies, and practices that now constitute this caste-like system um, were championed by a Democratic uh, president and administration desperate to win back those so-called white swing voters, well, the I'll folks go- who had defected from the Democratic Party in the wake of the civil rights. I was going to ask you, what do you think is the dynamic that drove Clinton and now drives Obama? Is it is it to satisfy the base they think most hostile to them? I think so. And, you know, what I find most unfortunate, though, um, of the politics that have developed over the years, the politics of trying to appease um, you know, poor and working class whites, not by building explicitly multiracial, multiethnic, you know, coalitions and alliances that encourage solidarity across racial and class lines, but instead by kind of tossing these um, symbolic bones, um, you know, saying, well, we're, we're escalating the drug, or we're getting tough on them, don't you feel better now? Um, we're willing to get tough by deporting even more immigrants than ever have been deported before. Don't you feel better now? Um, we fall into the trap of really playing to people's, you know, baser fears and instincts rather than um, risking perhaps some short-term losses, um, but building the kind of unity and the kind of solidarity across race and class lines, which I believe would help to ensure a much more stable foundation for the kind of multiracial, multiethnic, inclusive democracy that I would hope for. You have talked recently in um, a, a way different from how you were talking three and a half years ago. You've been talking about moving out of your own lane. What are you suggesting? Yeah, well, you know, right around the anniversary of the March on Washington, I found myself doing a fair amount of internal reflection about um, my own role um, at this time in building the kind of movement that I would hope for for social justice. And what I had to admit to myself is that for the last few years, you know, I have spent all of my working hours talking about mass incarceration and trying to raise consciousness about what has happened in this country, how we've managed to birth a caste-like system again, you know, that there are more African Americans under correctional control today in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, that we've, we've created this vast new system again, and to try to raise consciousness so that people would wake up to this reality. And I realized that as well-intentioned as all that work was, it was leading me to a place of relatively narrow thinking, that I wasn't connecting the dots between other kinds of social injustices that are occurring here in the United States and abroad to the work that I was committed to and the cause that I had been committed. um, There was a larger breakdown of democracy that affected more people than African Americans in prison or immigrants being deported. You're saying that the system is broken down. Absolutely, and it's really, I think... Um, at its root, about a failure on our part to develop a moral consensus about how we treat one another. Um, You know, for me, I have to care. If I care about a young man serving, you know, 25 years to life for a minor drug crime, if I care about him and care about his humanity, ought I not also care equally about a young woman who's facing deportation back to a country she hardly knows and had lived in only as a child and can barely speak the language. And ought I not be as equally concerned about her fate as well? Ought I not be equally concerned about a family um, whose loved ones were just killed by drones in Afghanistan? Um, Ought I not care equally for all? And that really was Dr. King's... um, insistence at the end of his life that we ought to care about the Vietnamese as much as we care and love our people at home. So I think we ought to commit ourselves 
to building a human rights movement in this country, a human rights movement for education, not incarceration, for jobs, not jails, a movement that will end all these forms of legal discrimination against people released from prison, discrimination that denies them basic human rights to work, to shelter, to education, to food. You don't think practical politics lead you where you want to go? No. I think that the system, as it is designed today, with the, the amount of money that influences who gets elected and who even has a shot um, of holding office in the United States today, um, I think that the way the system is currently designed does not allow um, for uh, that kind of policy change to occur. It begins, I believe, um, with people in their communities um, organizing around the issues that matter most to them. Aren't you talking in some instances about uh, ghettoized communities that where unemployment is high, uh, families are in distress, yes. schools are falling apart, uh, and there are very few life support systems. How do they organize? It's, it's incredibly difficult incredibly difficult, but it's not impossible. I'm inspired by people like Susan Burton, for example. Um, she's the executive director of an organization in Los Angeles called A New Way of Life. Mm. And Susan is an African-American woman who became addicted to crack cocaine after a Los Angeles Police Department officer ran over her five-year-old boy. And if Susan, you know, had been middle class, upper middle class, she might have had a good health care plan and might have been able to get good legal drugs <laughs> to help her cope with her depression and her grief, but things were different for Susan. She became addicted to crack cocaine and spent 15 years cycling in and out of prison and jail, every time tossed out onto the street, unable to get work or even drug access to drug treatment, cycling in and out for 15 years. Finally, she gets access to a private drug treatment program, becomes clean, is given a job, and decides to dedicate her life to ensuring that no other woman would ever have to go through what she has gone through. And now Susan runs five safe homes for formerly incarcerated women in Los Angeles, providing them desperately needed shelter, support, finding work, reunifying with their families. But beyond that, she is part of All of Us or None and is organizing formerly incarcerated people in California and nationwide to demand the restoration of their basic civil and human rights. And so what's happening is phenomenal. So they could become full citizens again. And with the leadership of organizations like All of Us or None, they've succeeded in banning the box on employment applications in the entire state of California. Um, you know, there are enormous victories that are being achieved precisely because the people who we have written off and viewed as disposable are reclaiming their voice, standing up, speaking out, organizing, even as they struggle to survive. And so, you know, my own view is that in building this movement, we've got to be able to do a number of things simultaneously. We've got to be able and committed to building under, an underground railroad for people who are released from prison, people who need desperate help finding shelter and food as they try to make a break for real freedom. But we've also got to be willing to work for abolition at the same time. Abolition of the system of mass incarceration as a whole. Aren't there some signs of progress on the issues that, that, that concern you? Attorney General Eric Holder has begun to advocate for some reform of our mandatory minimum sentences. Here he is speaking to the American Bar Association. Take a listen. I have today mandated a modification of the Justice Department's charging policy so that certain low-level, nonviolent drug offenders who have no ties to large-scale organizations, gangs, or cartels will no longer be charged with offenses that impose draconian mandatory minimum sentences. They... It's a very encouraging sign. Um, it suggests that at least with, for a small category of cases, um, mandatory minimum sentences will no longer um, be automatically sought by federal prosecutors. Um, and it's a positive step in the right direction. Um, it, it doesn't go all the way, 
<laughs> mandatory sentences are still on the books and will still apply um, to thousands of people um, who, you know, may be dubbed as having some kind of gang-related um, connections. And of course, those kind of connections do not have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And you know. In a number of states across the United States in recent years, um, mandatory minimum sentences for drug crimes, nonviolent drug crimes, have been reduced. And we've seen for the first time in 40 years state prison populations beginning to decline. Um, the federal prison population is still rising. Um, and most of the people who are incarcerated in federal prisons are there due to drug offenses and immigration violations. So um, we still see, um, you know, the federal prison population rising, but the state po prison population is beginning to decline. And that is reason for hope. But my concern is that the primary reason that legislatures have begun um, to ease up some of their harsh mandatory minimum sentences is not because of genuine concern for the peoples whose lives have been destroyed or the communities that have been decimated by the drug war. But instead, um, these changes have been motivated largely because of the fiscal crisis. They can't afford these prisons anymore. Yes, these states find that there's no way to maintain this massive prison systems without raising taxes on the predominantly white middle class. So they've been willing to downsize a bit. Well, take California. Uh, former Governor Schwarzenegger said they had been investing too much in prisons and not enough in schools. But ultimately, it turns out that what he was proposing wasn't altogether downsizing. It was privatizing the, prin yes. the prisons so that the responsibility for them uh, was transferred to for-profit corporations. And I ask you, what happens when there's a profit motive to send pre people to prison? Well, when there is a profit motive, uh, it ensures that more and more people will be locked up and remain locked up in order for companies to maintain their profit margins. Um, you know, the largest prison company, private prison company in the United States, um, the Corrections Corporation of America, sent a letter to 48 governors, basically, with an offer. We will buy your state-run prisons in exchange for a promise, a guarantee, that you will keep these prisons filled at least 90% capacity. Um, you know, these kinds of agreements and incentives are not in the public interest. Um, you know, what would be in the public interest is, you know, a commitment to reducing crime so that our prisons empty. But instead, private prisons want a commitment um, from state governors that these prisons will be kept filled by any means necessary, which virtually ensures a high level of commitment by politicians to these get-tough measures, mandatory sentences, war on drugs to keep prison beds filled. So, In fact, Arizona, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and I believe Virginia all have privatized prisons that are kept at, 80, at 95 to 100 percent occupancy because they have guaranteed that occupancy to uh, the private industry. Even if the crime rate Oh. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, that's what's most worrisome <laughs> is that they will insist and have insisted on keeping their beds full, even if crime rates are relatively low. And today, you know, crime rates nationally are at historical lows, but incarceration rates um, are higher than they ever have been. Well, and some people argue, as you know, that the crime rate nationally is down because we've been locking up the people who commit the crimes. Yes, which has been proven to be demonstrably false. Um, you know, if you look at the data, it shows that, you know, states that have been on an incarceration binge um, do not necessarily have lower crime rates than states that have incarcerated people at a lower rate. There is no clear connection between incarceration rates and crime rates. And in fact, in cities like Chicago and in New Orleans, New Orleans is the incarceration capital of the world, um, 
you know, they have some of the highest violent crime rates uh, in the country as well. And the same can be said for Chicago. In fact, you know, a growing number of researchers and sociologists now believe that um, incarceration rates, high levels of incarceration actually can be a contributor to high crime rates because you're incarcerating, incarcerating such a large percentage of a community or population, you're ensuring that um, people are going to be locked out of work and locked out of housing and living you know, in a state of desperation um, for the rest of their lives. So I would hope that as we build this movement to end mass incarceration, we will not be tempted to make purely fiscal arguments about the need for reform, but ensure that the way we engage in our advocacy helps to inspire much greater care, compassion, and concern for the very people who have been locked up, locked out, and that we have been taught to despise. But when you look back historically at slavery, condoned by many people who quoted the Bible. When you look at what happened after the Civil mm-hmm. War, it took a civil war to free the slaves, and then they were put back into a form of slavery with the coerced uh, labor, forced labor. And then you have Jim Crow laws you refer to, look at the racial violence that extended right on through our time. Where do you get any hope that this ideal of compassion, that, that we can create a society such as you describe, given our conflicted, often savage past? I, I get my hope from this revolutionary idea that doesn't seem to die in the United States. Um, this idea that all people are created equal with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was a revolutionary idea <laughs> in the Declaration of Independence, and it was wholly incomplete. It was all men are created equal, and implicitly slaves were left out, um, you know, poor people were left out. Women were left out. Women were left out, right. Um, But it was a revolutionary idea then, and it remains a revolutionary idea today. This idea that keeps changing and growing and expanding as our consciousness changes and grows and expands, that all human beings are created equal and have certain inalienable rights, it won't die. It didn't die with slavery. You know, a war was necessary to end slavery. But this idea has continued to survive, and it's continued to grow. And we see now that in the United States, we do believe that women are equal. We have an idea that people of all races are created equal. We are now beginning to see that depending on, regardless of your sexual orientation, you are equal. This idea itself has not died. Um, and so I think the worst thing we can do is to fall into a sort of cynicism where we imagine nothing can ever be done. Um, you know, these new systems of control just keep being born. This is just part of human nature. Well, it may be part of human nature to fear one another, um, but there is also a part of human nature, I believe, that wants to see uh, the equality even divinity in each other, and to honor it. And that spirit remains alive in the United States today. And if we give up on it, then I think we're giving up um, on the dream of truly thriving, equitable, multiracial, multiethnic democracy. Michelle Alexander, thank you very much for being with me. Thanks for having me. In our conversation, you heard Michelle Alexander single out a woman named Susan Burton as an inspiration, both to her and to the movement to reform the criminal justice system and reclaim basic civil and human rights for people released from incarceration. Because of Susan Burton, many women have found shelter, a job, and camaraderie during that rocky period after they walk out of prison into what otherwise would be a cold and treacherous world. She herself almost didn't make it. Burton served six prison sentences in California for drug-related felonies. She's never forgotten what she heard a prison guard say as she walked away for what turned out to be the last time. I'll see you back in a little while. After all, 65% of the state's parolees do return to jail within three years, and nearly a third of them within the first six months. 
But thanks to treatment and resolve, Susan Burton has stayed clean and free. Today, her Los Angeles organization, A New Way of Life, runs five houses offering help to women struggling to rebuild their lives. Her story is told in a film released last year, produced and directed by Tessa Blake and Emma Hewitt. Here's an excerpt. This is Susan Burton. She's the founder and executive of A New Way of Life. And this is Samantha Jenkins. And whatever we can do to help you uh, pursue your goals, you know, you know, we're here for you. What kind of plans you have? I plan on going to school. Whatever you need to, you know, get your school going, you yeah. let us know. Okay. We want to keep you grounded and connected. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks. A new way of life is the home. We're going to get you situated, and we're going to explain everything. It's a home where women can come and feel accepted and supported and safe. If you find any problems, just let me know. We can help you get yourself where you want to be in life. It's home for so many women who have no place to go. Most inmates who enter the penal system are likely to return to prison within three years of their release. Angela released from prison 11 months ago. I was locked up for four years. That's a long time. I was happy to be out, but still scared. Because, you know, I guess because we're creatures of habit. And you want to feel secure and safe. They drive you to the uh, bus station and, you know, they give you $200 and they buy your ticket out of your money and put you on a bus. And uh, you're just headed to wherever. And so I arrived downtown LA and it was really scary. It was really scary. And I looked like I came from prison, you know. I was dusty looking, you know, with jeans and a paper bag. Everybody knows that you're from prison. They know. Just by the way you look and they know. You get approached by everybody. There were people asking you if you needed a ride, telling you that you look fine. Drug addicts, people living that life and you know they are. It's so easy to get lured especially if you're scared, and, and I'm gonna be honest, I was scared. And I felt like I was just standing there buck naked. I didn't have any place to go, I really didn't. And I called Miss Burton and uh, I told her, I said, I received a letter from you and you said for me to call you and that you would pick me up. And she says, where are you? And I told her, she says, I'll be there in about 15 minutes. And she came and picked me up. So they come into a place be able to drink out of a glass and not plastic, to sleep on a mattress and not metal, and to have food, have choices. It's just stuff people take for granted. Ms. Burton is so sweet. She's a good lady. I'm glad she picked me up. Susan Burton. This house is the beginning of a new way of life. Uh, I, I got it uh, in 1998 fashioned a house for women who have been incarcerated. And that's where I started. When I left prison, I went to treatment and got a job. And, you know, I saved the money and I saved about $12,000. Yeah, and I mean, I saved every dime. Some months I didn't spend but $40 a month for anything that I needed. And um, everything else I, I saved. And I didn't understand why or what I was saving for. I didn't know I was on my way to creating something that would um, have the, the ability to change lives. I tried to give help in the same fashion that I had received it. There was a lot of movement in the house, a lot of uh, cooking and TV watching and healing going on. And part of it was my healing also. I relate really closely with the women. I understand what they're feeling. I've felt the same thing. I've had the same fears, the same anger, the same frustration. I lost my son and um, he was accidentally uh, killed by a police officer. And um, I just didn't know what to do. My whole world just spun. The pain of everything was so um, 
unbearably present in my body. I think if you looked at me, you could almost see it or touch it. Um, and uh, it was all the disappointment, all the grief, all the sorrow that um, had to be addressed. So I was able to address it um, through, through someone helping me. Residents of the house are required to remain sober and to attend weekly recovery meetings. I am about to go visit with my daughter. Stacy, released from prison nine months ago. I'm a little bit fearful um, because of the way my lifestyle was a few years back when I was in my addiction. I started prostituting myself, and that is the worst thing ever in her eyes. So I don't know where we're going to go with this or how we're going to get through it, but I'm going to try talking to her and hopefully she'll open up and we can get past it. Dominique has some resentments towards me because of my addiction and I was in and out of prison. This is a picture of me when I got my GED in prison. I was in prison when I took this picture. I went to prison for voluntary manslaughter. I left in 1989. I didn't come home until 1996. I was happy to come back into my daughter's life, but I didn't know how she would accept me because I had been gone so long. You know, I would stay clean and sober, and then I'd go back to that lifestyle again, so I knew that I had to work hard to earn her trust again. Stacy's daughter, Dominique. I couldn't trust her. So through her addiction, as I got older, I knew I couldn't trust her. I didn't trust her with anything. I didn't trust her with my child. I didn't trust her with me. She went back to jail a lot. Parole violation after parole violation repeatedly. I'll never forget the day that I had to kick the freaking door down to get to my mom who's getting high in the next room, who stole my son's piggy bank to go buy drugs. I couldn't think. I never stole your son. No, I did not, Dominique. Mom, there's a lot of stuff that you say you didn't, you don't think you did, but I think that you're, when you were active in your drug use, you don't remember a lot of stuff. I mean, you hurt a lot of people. I know. And you have a lot of relationships to fix. You can't hide the things, the mistakes you make. You can't act like they didn't happen or push them aside and think you can start all over. I'm getting better. I'm not there yet, but 100%, but I'm, I'm working on it. You are, you do. Okay. I guess that's all I could ask for. Okay, and you got it. Thanks. A long time coming. <laughs> Give me a hug. Again, here's Angela. This is my room, and this is my bed, and I was right here on the computer. I like the fact that I know how to use it, so it's so cool. I just wish I could use it to get a job. I'm healthy, I'm employable, I'm willing. I've been out of prison for just about a year, and I've been looking for a job ever since I've been out. I was a nurse before, and I never had a resume, and I just walked in, and they would hire me right on the spot. Now I have all this resume, the certificates, and all this stuff, but it doesn't matter because my background is in the way. Again, Susan. We don't get a lot of money here. We barely make it from month to month, keeping the doors open, keeping food in the houses, keeping the lights on, keeping staff paid. That, that invoice should have been paid, right? And then do, how much am I short from payroll? That's still short. Okay. All right. Bye. It was 1999. I was a few months over. And it angered me that I would be treated so cruel and caged and chained for a drug charge. And I knew thousands of women just like me who had been negatively impacted by the war on drugs, who were incarcerated on a turnstile going in and out of prison, not able to get help. Imagine $70,000 a year to keep us contained 
just squandering public funds. I just got a notice saying that mental health services had been defunded. Hell, they could have sent me to Yale <laughs> for all those years <laughs> and got so many degrees. You know, six prison sentences. You know, six degrees, right? <sighs> just now one thing is two or three. The female prison population grew by 832 percent from 1977 to 2007 due to the war on drugs. There's a chicken in the backyard. Hi there. Are you thirsty or you want something to eat? I think he's hungry. He's looking for food. I had a big text bill and uh, I just panicked. I did and. Uh, talking to a friend and said, I can help you out. You can make some quick money selling drugs. I was selling crack, crystal, marijuana, Vicodin, Viagra, everything I could get my hands on. I was just going to do it for a little while, pay my bills, and be done. But that didn't happen. I got four years. I went to see the social worker sign up for food stamps. She asked me if I had a conviction or anything like that on my record, and of course I told her the truth, you know. I said, yes, I have, and she said, what? And I said, for sales of, uh, you know, narcotics. And she says, oh, you're not eligible for food stamps. They won't give me food stamps because of my conviction. They won't give me low-income housing because of my conviction. And trying to find a job. It's like they throw your application in the trash. I feel like I'm drowning. I could call up a drug dealer right now, somebody that knows me, and uh, I don't have to have any money. They would give me something to sell, and I would pay them back, and then I would be on my way. It's very easy to get back into that, that lifestyle. Here's another one. Isn't that one pretty? They are cute. We have a yellow one. There's a yellow one, too. I shouldn't say we. We're not allowed pets, but oh, well. <laughs> Everything likes it here. It's a good place. Federal law bars anyone convicted of a drug-related felony from receiving federal assistance. In most cases, it's a lifetime ban. Again, Stacy. Well, it was pretty deep, but I believe she got a chance to say a lot of things that, you know, she had been holding in. Yeah. And a lot of it was hurtful. The pain that our children incur, we just don't know how, how, how deep and how far it goes. Mm -hmm. It's taken me over 10 years to receive some forgiveness for the character I was mm -hmm. through my um, alcoholism and addiction. And I did the same thing that you were doing, that you're doing now. You are very inspiring, and um, I consider you to be my mentor. I have never told you this, but um, I admire you. Thank you. And um, I'm staying under your wing. You are not getting rid of me, and I want to learn from you, and I want to be like you and give back and help others that come behind you. Well, I don't know if I told you, but I admire you too. And I think about you um, and where you're headed, and it makes my heart very, very happy. Because um, you are the reason I do what I do. Again, here's Angela. I got blessed with a job. I'm working in the laundromat. The lady that owns the laundromat is an acquaintance of Miss Burden. She gave me two days a week part-time at $8 an hour, and I am thrilled keeping the washers and dryers clean and giving people change. And she gave me the keys and I count money. She trusts me. I'm happy to have a job. It's just awesome. I wouldn't be able to survive on the money that I make here if I left a nowhere life. So I need some more hours. I need to have my own housing. And I need transportation. But anyway, I'm happy I have this. This is a start. One step at a time, you know? More than 600 women have been through Susan Burton's reentry program. 70% of 
have not been reincarcerated. It's chicken, ribs, sausage, and greens in it. No doubt, do me. Starving. When did you start? I started um, last Wednesday. Wow. So it's just two days a week. Chasing bubbles. <laughs> I do. I'm a bubble chaser, which is okay. It's a job. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm thankful. You know what? You never gave up looking for a job. Never. And I'm still not giving up. Mm-hmm. I want you guys to meet my daughter, finally. Um, her and my grandkids will be here. Good. And things are good. That's good, Stacey. Yeah, things are good. That's from the film Susan by Tessa Blake and Emma Hewitt. Not only is Miss Burton's work the subject of the movie, she's also been recognized far and wide for her leadership and courage. She was a member of California's Sentencing Reform Commission. She serves on the board of the Los Angeles Sober Living Network, and she received the Citizen Activist Award from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. At our website, BillMoyers.com, we'll link you to more of her story and more about Michelle Alexander and her extraordinary book, The New Jim Crow, acclaimed as the Bible of a Social Movement. That's all at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here next time. Moyers and Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Our radio producer is Helen Sylvan. Our editor is Paul Henry Desjardins. Funding is provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Kohlberg Foundation, independent production fund with support from the Partridge Foundation, a John and Polly Guth charitable fund. The Clements Foundation, Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Foundation. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Ann Gumowitz, the Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation. The HKH Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman, and by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.